Hi, everyone. So as a lot of you know, after spending a good four decades considering what I wanted to be when I grow up, I started the process of becoming a healthcare chaplain in 2019. And after being, oh, briefly waylaid by a pandemic, um, I began my first job um, as a home hospice chaplain um, at the end of last year. I have a really weird job. I see this in the myriad reactions that I have already gotten when people ask, innocently ask me what I do for a living, then struggle to figure out how to respond when I tell them I offer spiritual care to the dying. I see this in the range of reactions I receive when I re reach out to our new patients and families. I feel this every day as I balance the felt and experienced needs of my patients with Medicare requirements that every hospital patient be offered, every hospice patient be offered spiritual support. I feel this every day as my mundane efforts to schedule my time are complicated by the mysterious timing of the end of human lives. As someone who habitually tries to meet everyone's expectations of me at all times, adjusting to this job has been a strange journey for me because I almost never meet people's expectations of what a chaplain is. In some cases, this is a really good thing. I have the opportunity to non-judgmentally listen and be present with people who've had negative experiences um, with religious leaders and institutions. Um, sometimes this can be kind of painful um, because I get people either confused or sometimes disappointed that they're, the chaplain they're being um, assigned is not a man. And um, part of my life has been um, you know, kind of dealing with the fact that given the gifts that I have to offer in ministry, um, I too have wondered why I'm not a man. Um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but also too, sometimes um, my failure to meet expectations is just really difficult because hurting people look to me to speak words of wisdom and truth, to assure them and to answer their doubts and I have to say, I'm sorry I don't do that. That's just not what I'm for. You might want confidence and certainty. I'm just an ordinary person who drives around all day telling people that it's okay for them to feel what they're feeling. In the work that I do, I have seen how churches and church people often talk about how, how I often see how ch the ways that churches and church people talk about doubting and questioning can cause people anguish at the end of their lives. Because when one spends their life enmeshed in a faith tradition that discourages questioning, it can be far too easy to avoid asking questions until the time when one learns that their life here will soon be ending and they'll soon learn if the next life will really be everything that they were taught to expect. And people can find themselves really doubting and questioning for the first time as they're approaching the day when they've been taught that they will be judged by their faith. Um, it is possible, and I'm sure it's often been done, um, that both of today's readings have been sort of seen as warnings against doubts and questions. If people know anything about Thomas the Apostle, they know him as Doubting Thomas. And I imagine many people would assume that this doubting was a failure, a sign that he lacked the faith that the other apostles held. And while the story from Exodus is less familiar in our, country, in our culture, I wonder if in its own culture, it might have 
also been a classic story about the failure to have faith. For example, we see, in Psalm 90, see that in Psalm 95, the psalmist writes, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as the day, on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, I swore, therefore, in my anger, I swore they will not enter into my rest. So not only, as Peter pointed out, it seems really weird that um, wanting water, asking for water, is a way of putting God to the test. We, often, we see this example of that being responded to really, really strongly and negatively, and something that's punished um, in this example in the, in the history of um, how people have talked about that story. Um, both of these stories um, do seem to act on some level as cautionary, might see, be seen to act on some level as cautionary tales against doubting the presence and goodness of the Lord. But as we look at these stories today, I think it's interesting to look at the reactions that Thomas and the people at Massa and Meribah received to their doubts and questions. First, let's talk about Thomas. Thomas was not present with the group of the disciples that were gathered, with the doors locked in fear of those that, those that opposed Jesus would come for them next. That in itself is a fascinating detail, because if the disciples believe that there was a threat against them against which they must lock the doors, it must have taken some combination of faith and courage to venture out, as Thomas did. And I can only imagine how ridiculous the other disciples' claim would have seemed to Thomas when he returned. You know our leader who was hung from a tree, who died and was buried, and then we found out that his tomb was empty, and one of the women saw him wandering around the garden, and we thought she had lost her mind? Well, he showed up. Just while you were out. Oh no, we didn't have to unlock the door or anything, he just sort of appeared. I think we would all forgive Thomas for having his doubts here. And the thing is, it sounds like Jesus forgave Thomas's doubts too, or even that Jesus didn't think there was anything to forgive. He didn't criticize Thomas for his lack of faith. He didn't express that he was offended or even surprised by Thomas' doubt, Thomas's doubts. Jesus presented his hands inside for Tom and Thomas to examine and touch. He offered Thomas the proof that Thomas needed to stop doubting and to believe. Now, the text of Exodus 17 does present the Israelites' doubts and questions at Massa and Meribah in a critical light. The people complained to Moses, saying, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And Moses asked them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses cried out to the Lord, saying that the people were almost ready to stone him. Moses named the place Massa and Meribah, meaning test and quarrel because the Israelites quarreled with and tested the Lord, saying, the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? The text, of Israel's, the text of Exodus doesn't tell us anything about the Lord's thoughts and feelings in the face of the people's questions. The only words we hear from the Lord are the instructions to Moses to go and strike a rock and the water will flow out, giving people water to drink. The text tells us about Moses' frustration with the people, and, and it shows us how God supplies the people with water, meeting the need that caused them to question whether God would continue to sustain them in the wilderness. 
I don't mean to say that the psalmist made this tale of God's, made this what should have been a tale of God's provision into a cautionary tale, or that God would not have, could not have felt the anger that the psalmist portrays God as expressing. Even though the critical words toward the people in the Exodus text itself came from Moses, the story does leave one with the impression that people, the people were wrong in testing God and quarreling with Moses. While there are many schools of thought on how to understand biblical statements about God expressing anger and hatred, there's nothing in the Exodus text that contradicts the claim that the people, that contradicts the psalmist's claim that the people, by putting God to the test at Massa and Meribah, contributed to God's anger to the people, leading to God causing them to cause them to wander in the wilderness. But Exodus does not show, Exodus text itself does not show God expressing anger at the people or disappointment at their questioning. The Exodus, Exodus text shows God acting to give people the thing they needed, the very thing they cried out for. It is, it is pretty obvious that both of these stories do say that it's better to believe and trust in God than it is to question God or look for proof. But in both of these stories, the people who question God, who have doubts, are met where they are. Their needs are met. The evidence that they ask for is presented without any, without any expression of criticism or reservation from the one who gives. The failure to have faith is not met with punishment and con condemnation. It is met with generosity and another display that God will give to those who act, that those who seek will find. I don't even think the words ascribed to the Lord in Psalm 92 necessarily contradicts this. The psalmist shows the Lord saying, do not harden your hearts as at Massa, as on the day, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. That last bit, though they had seen my work, suggested that insofar as the time in the wilderness was punishment for what occurred at Massa and Meribah, the issue might not have been so much this particular of instance of doubt, but the continued questioning by the people of whether God would provide for their daily needs, even after God had split the seas to lead them out of slavery and rained down bread, for, bread from heaven to sustain them in the wilderness. This suggests to me that the cautionary tale here is not just against having doubts or questions or asking for water when thirsty, but the specific continued questioning of God's provision by people who had seen the proof, who had time and again had seen the lengths to which God would go to see God's people live freely in the land that God had promised their ancestors. And even so, water came flowing from the rock when Moses struck it, and their daily bread continued to rain down from heaven. I think that church people have too often presented that have have presented, wait, sorry. <laughs> I think church people have too often presented the lack of faith as a failure worthy of shame and condemnation. When that is seen as the case, our doubts too often become a secret that we hold, even from ourselves, until we can, until we can delay them no longer. Given that, I understand when people are sometimes frustrated when they reach this point when approaching the ends of their lives 
And then they get a clergy girl from the hospice agency telling them that we all doubt, which we haven't seen for our own eyes, with, which we haven't seen with our own eyes, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Just after just a few months now of sitting with people who are dying, I have a lot of thoughts about how thoughts about the things we do, the ways in which the things we do as the church and as a culture increase people's suffering as they approach the end of their lives. I would put the failure of so many churches to allow people's questions and doubts throughout their lives high on that list. Too often the church has treated faith as the basic identifying characteristic and the responsibility of anyone who would follow Jesus. In some traditions, faith is literally the only thing that can assure us that we're saved from damnation. In other traditions, our adherence to the community's shared faith is a necessary condition of belonging. If we place such high stakes on having faith, we might listen to the story of Thomas and hear only Jesus' statement that blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. But in light of Jesus' uncritical willingness to offer Thomas the proof that he is their teacher who was crucified and yet lives again, we might assume that not having seen and yet believe is something extraordinary. It is not the faith that we must have to be saved or the faith that we must have to belong. The story suggests that that's not even a faith that the rest of the disciples had because Jesus shows all of them his hands and feet as proof when he sees them to show that he's raised, he's been raised. I wonder who we would be if we saw faith not as a first step of belonging to the church, but as a lifelong practice that we grow and cultivate together. I wonder who we would be if we saw questions and doubts, not as a source of shame or a sign of immaturity, but as the normal response of a human being when asked to trust in something that they've not seen. I wonder if through a life of living honestly in the tension between faith and doubt, we might learn little by little to become people who trust in God's presence even when we don't feel it, to become a people who can look at the chaos of this world, look at this world of chaos and pain, and find signs of the new world that God is building. <laughs>